Well, good morning, Christ Chapel. Welcome to church. You might not have even wanted to go to church today, but you're willing to do anything to get out of the house. And we are so glad that you're here to join us uh, for worship. And what I would like everyone to do right now is open your Bibles. Please open your Bibles to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2. No matter what venue you're in, if you're opening one of those blue Bibles, it is page 909, 909. And while you open your Bibles uh, there, I want to also give you an opportunity to give. I know that is a form of worship that we give of the resources that God has given to us. And I certainly thank all of you for giving. If you'd like to give today, uh, you can do so no matter what campus you attend. Uh, you can give through all of those ways, texting in that code. You can give online. Or if you're at one of our physical locations, you can drop in that offering in one of the boxes outside of the worship venue after the service. Uh, but certainly thank all of you for giving. It, it allows us to do some uh, really cool things as, as we try to be disciples, make disciples, and reach disciples. And one of those things that your offerings have gone to, uh, specifically the end of year giving, which thank you, those of you who gave to that, we're still tallying all that stuff up. But that was that unforeseen opportunity for those folks who are meeting in Granbury. So hello again to all of you meeting in Granbury. Heard they had a great kind of grand opening. They had uh, over 170 folks uh, there for their first service. So really excited to see what God uh, does there in Hood County. I hope you guys made a good first impression on everyone there in Hood County because we all know you only get one chance to make a good first impression. Or another way that they say that is you don't get a second chance to make a first impression. You only get one chance to make a good first impression, and, and we know that that is, is true. Now, it doesn't mean that it, it's everything, but a first impression matters a whole lot. In fact, there was a study done that said that when we look at people, we make a judgment about them within one-tenth of a second. One-tenth of a second. When we look at somebody, we make a judgment about their character, about their competency. They did this uh, study with actually political figures that they put up. And so I'm sure they were all negative about their competency. But uh, that was a joke, guys. Okay, I'm just, just kidding. Wow, tough crowd this morning. Okay, I see, I get it. You had a tough week. But one-tenth of a second, man, that's a first impression doesn't mean everything, but it means a whole lot. It's why people focus on uh, presenting a good first impression. It's why people work on their resumes so hard because that's the first thing that maybe comes across a person's desk when they're looking for a job. It's why people clean up their social media sites because that's what somebody will see whenever they're looking into them if they're looking for a job. It's why a batter has a cool walk-up song. That first impression provides a tone and an expectation of what's to come. Character-wise, competency-wise, about a person's capability. It's not everything, but it certainly is worth something. And what we're going to talk about today is the arrival of a person in Scripture that has come before, but he came in a totally different way than he ever had uh, in the Old Testament. And that is the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit. 
And what we're going to look at is his arrival and the first impression that that makes on those particular hearers and seers during that day and the impression that that leaves on us as it echoes into our everyday lives. And so that's what we're going to be talking about today from Acts chapter 2, verses 1 to 13. Uh, For those of you who read ahead, read the passage ahead, if you remember, that was the help from last week. Kudos to you, man. I'm so proud of you. Way to go. You had a plan, and you obviously had a place to read the scripture. Way to go. Keep it going. That was week one. You got week two coming up, and we'll continue to give you those scriptures. But we're obviously continuing our series, Empowered, today, as we talk about being empowered by the Holy Spirit. But I know that we've taken a couple of weeks where we've taken a break, and we've kind of taken a little side road. And so I want to catch you up and we'll go back real fast as a way of review. So remember, Acts begins, it was recorded by Luke, the physician, and it was recorded about the Acts of the Apostles, or some call the Acts of the Holy Spirit, and how he affected the early church. And so if you'll remember, Jesus is meeting as a resurrected Savior, meeting with the disciples in Jerusalem. And he's teaching them about the kingdom of God and revealing himself with many proofs, as verse 3 says, to show them that he really is alive. He is resurrected. So they're in this 40-day period where he's revealing himself to them. And remember, we talked about 40 days is a period of preparation and transition. There's a transition that's about to come. And so he's meeting with them, and he tells them, hey, I'm not going to be here very much longer, and I'm going to send the Holy Spirit to you so that you will be empowered to be my witnesses. Good. Be my witnesses. And we talked about witnesses. The the word there is martyr, but it really just means to tell of what you've seen and heard. That's all that word means. And he says, the Holy Spirit is going to empower you to be my witnesses. And then all of a sudden, poof, he's gone. He, uh, he ascends, and it's not like he just disappears like the magician that throws down the powder and smoke, and then he, he's gone. Remember, he, he ascends. They can see him ascending. So he ascends into heaven, and he says, but wait here for the Holy Spirit. Now, what are they doing while they're waiting? What are they doing while they're waiting? Look at Acts chapter 1, verse 14. It's not going to come up on the screen. This is why you need an open copy of the scriptures. If you don't have a Bible, just email me. Jen and I would love to buy you a Bible. Promise. Uh, But Acts chapter 1, verse 14, it says, And all of these were with one accord. They were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. So there are more people that are there than the, just the, the 12 disciples. It, it includes women, Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. And we find out if you look at verse 15, Acts chapter 1, verse 15, there's about 120 folks. There's about 120 folks that are waiting for the Holy Spirit to come, just waiting as Jesus told them to. But while they wait, they're of one accord and devoting themselves to prayer. They're praying in anticipation. God, help us be ready to receive what you are going to send to us. And then all of a sudden, we have this grand entrance of the Holy Spirit, this, this, this great 
arrival and this great arrival that would be heard around the world. And that's what we're going to be talking about today. So what I want to do is I want to describe what happened here in Acts chapter 2, verses 1 to 13. It's really just going to be a description, an explanation of the text. And here's why this is going to be important, because this is a very, very important distinction that I want you to understand, is this passage is descriptive of what happened during this time. It is not prescriptive of what should happen in your life or my life today. This is descriptive. This is just describing the arrival of the Holy Spirit. It's not prescribing that when the Holy Spirit arrives in your life, this is what it should look like. Does that make sense? The difference between description and prescription? Okay, I, tr- I try to think of, of an analogy and the, the best one that I could come up with was the 4th of July. If you think about the 4th of July, there were, 4th of July, obviously, we, so that's what we mark as our Independence Day back in 1776. But what happened then with those founding fathers when they signed that document, that's not what we expect to happen to us when we celebrate the 4th of July. Now, certainly, the things that happened in 1776 affect us today. We enjoy many freedoms in our country today as citizens of America. But we, we don't expect the same things to happen to us that happened to them. Certainly has a ripple effect and affects us today. Descriptive, not prescriptive. And you're going to hear that. Uh, I will explain more, but I just want that phrase in your mind. I'll explain that more as we go throughout the text. What, what I'm basically doing is I'm going to describe what happened then. Over the course of the next three weeks, we will talk about now. We're gonna do a little mini series on the Holy Spirit. And you go, hold on, Cody, today we just got back on the road in Acts. Now we're about to get off the road again. Yes, we're gonna take a little rest stop because I think it's so incredibly important for us to understand first week is gonna be the personhood of the Holy Spirit. And then the next two weeks after that are gonna be the personal ministry of the Holy Spirit to and through you. And so that's, we're going to take a little three-week series coming up the next three weeks. So today, we're just going to describe then, over the course of the next three weeks, we're going to talk about now. We on the same page? Okay, great. Thank you. So let's go ahead and jump into verses one to three. I want you to see, as we describe what happened then, I want you to see that the Holy Spirit arrived just as Jesus had promised he would. The Holy Spirit arrived just as Jesus had promised he would. Follow along with me. I just want to read verses 1 to 3 before I explain it. So when the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind. And it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. Stop right there. Pause. Okay. Let me give, give you the setting. So I already told you that they're all remaining together. We saw that in Acts chapter 1, verse 14 and 15. So they're all remaining together. Why are they remaining together? Because Jesus told them to. Wait here. 
I also think that, can you imagine if Jesus had told you to wait there as a disciple and like you wouldn't want to leave like the room. You're like, you know, can I go to the bathroom? Like, I, I, you know, you, you, you have like this FOMO, you know, you don't want to miss out. You're like, when is this going to happen? This, there's, a, there's a great anticipation about what is going to happen as Jesus had promised them the sending of the Holy Spirit. And so they're all waiting together around there. And then it says the day is Pentecost. Now, I want to explain just quickly about that. Pentecost was a national celebration for Israel, a national celebration where they celebrated. The, it's a feast of the harvest, where they harvested everything. And this was the 50th day after Passover. Now, you remember Passover. Passover is the celebration where Jesus delivered his people from Israel. Remember, the, the blood of the, the lamb was, that was the curse of the firstborn, that was the 10th plague on Israel. But if they put blood on their doorpost, then the angel of death would pass over them and it saved them. They were saved by the blood. Jesus, dead, buried, rose again. Passover, he was celebrating the Passover feast with his disciples. That was Passover. Great symbolism of all this stuff going on, which I don't have time to go into in depth. That was Passover. Then they have the Feast of Weeks. That's 49 days. Then the great celebration is Pentecost, 50 days after Passover. Penta, this, this is, Pentecost is just a Greek transliteration for the word 50th. 50th, why? Because it's 50 days after Passover. So the 50th day, they have this great celebration where they celebrate the first fruits of the harvest, where they set apart these are the first fruits. God, we thank you for uh, your blessing and provision for us as a nation. So that's what, that's what the time period is. So this is Pentecost. And as you know, Passover, because we celebrate Easter, that was basically springtime, end of spring. So that would have meant Pentecost was early-ish summer. So this is like early-ish, maybe June-ish. That, that Pentecost would usually take place. And that's important to know because this was one of the feasts, Pentecost was one of the feasts where pilgrims were to travel to Jerusalem from all over. So they were to travel there and they actually could because the weather was favorable. So the weather being spring, early summer, it was easier for them to travel. So Pentecost was actually one of the best attended feasts that people from all, Jews from all over the world would come to Jerusalem to celebrate. So there are a lot of people there. Okay, I know that's a long explanation to tell you a lot of people there expecting to celebrate. Okay, that, that is the stage. And the, the, uh, the disciples, along with the women, Mary, the mother of Jesus, his brothers, they're, they're all there waiting for the Holy Spirit. And then Pentecost comes, and they're expecting to celebrate God's provision. A ton of symbolism here. Another one, just a fun fact. Pentecost was also believed that that was the day that Moses received the law on Mount Sinai. So now you have the Israelites ruled by law. Now you have Pentecost, now they're going to be ruled by the Holy Spirit. Okay, just I don't have time to go into all of it, but those are just fun. Okay, so I want to explain what happens. So that's the setting. It's Pentecost, great anticipation. Now the Holy Spirit arrives. I want to explain how 
the Holy Spirit arrived himself. So this is all on your sermon notes. So first, the arrival of the Holy Spirit was sudden, unique, and supernatural. The arrival of the Holy Spirit was sudden, unique, and supernatural. We do not have another event like this recorded in Scripture. This is unique. And the Holy Spirit came suddenly. This was something that was supernatural, not something that could be manifested, not something that could be asked for. This is what Jesus promised and Jesus delivered. But this is something unique. But I also wanted, I, this is why I pointed out the ascension to you early, earlier on, uh, because there are elements where the ascension uh, correlate with the arrival of the Holy Spirit. If you'll remember in the ascension, uh, the words that I used for that, I can't even remember, so I got to read them. I don't expect you to remember. Uh, but when we talked about the ascension, I, t- I told you in, that the ascension was gradual, bodily, and visible. And that was important because that was important for, for the disciples to see that Jesus had ascended into heaven, not just the poof magician smoke and he's gone, or he just kind of stopped showing up every once in a while. It was important for them to understand that transition, a key transition, he ascended into heaven. Similarly, that, as that ended his earthly ministry, now the Holy Spirit arrives in a sudden, unique, and supernatural way to show the beginning of the Holy Spirit's unique ministry on earth for a new dispensation. This is a new way that God is going to interact with his people through the power of the Holy Spirit. So it's an inaugural event a special event. This is something that has never happened before, which is why I said sudden, unique, and supernatural. One of the things that makes it unique is not only that this is the first time that this has happened, and we do not have another record of this throughout Scripture, but the arrival of the Holy Spirit was audible and visual. You could hear it, You could hear him arrive, and you could see him, the Holy Spirit, arrive. So I want to explain the analogies that are there. So it said that he appeared as the sound of a rushing wind. If you look at that in verse 2, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. Now, there's so many overlaps here um, because uh, when you start talking about the, the sound of a mighty rushing wind, so was it a wind? No. But that's what you think because you hear wind. So you think, you know, the curtains blew. <laughs> no. That's not what I said. I said it was a sound like that. Now, what does the wind sound like? I don't know what the wind sounds like unless it moves something. I, I, don't, I don't know what that sounds like, but this says that it sounds like a mighty rushing wind. So why does it use the sound of a mighty rushing wind if there was no wind there and he's just talking about the sound? I have no idea, okay? But what I do know is this, that the word that's used for wind here is the word that is used for the Holy Spirit. It's this word pneuma, okay? And this word, this Greek word pneuma means spirit, wind, or life. 
And it correlates to the Old Testament word, ruah. Now, the Old Testament word ruah means those same things, wind, uh, life-giving breath or spirit. And where we see that word ruah is back in Ezekiel chapter 36. In Ezekiel 36, when Ezekiel is prophesying about the new covenant that is to come, Ezekiel says, God is going to give you a new spirit, and he's going to remove the heart, your heart of stone, okay? And he's going to give you a new, new breath, new life. And then what happens in Ezekiel 37? Do you remember? This is where the dry bones come alive. Through what? Through the ruah, this, this, this new, and I'm not saying it the way that Hebrews say it, it's like ruach. Is how you actually say it, but um, I'm just making it Texan for us, okay? Um, so this ruah breathes life into these dead bones. That's the picture when he is foreshadowing the new covenant to come in Ezekiel 36 and 37. So now this wind, this sound of a wind, the wind, this pneuma is breathing life into the church. And Jesus actually described the spirit coming as wind in John chapter three, when he's talking to Nicodemus about you, you can't just be reborn. You can't go into your mother's womb again, but you have to be reborn by the spirit. Do you remember this? In John chapter three, verse eight, he describes, he, he says, the wind blows where it wishes and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with the spirit of God. So this mighty rushing wind, this sound of a rushing wind is a depiction of the Holy Spirit that brings life from death. That, that's the picture that we're given through the, through the Old Testament and through the New Testament. And this is what they hear. This is what they hear, those that are sitting in the house. But they don't just hear something, they see something. And it says what they see, if you look back at verse 3, it says, And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. Now, again, we need, we need some context here because you go, why flames? I don't understand, okay? Go back to the Old Testament. Fire represents God's presence. Or if to colloquialize it, to make it culturally relevant, Fire represents life. You know what line that's from? Anybody? Survivor, okay? Your fire represents life. You don't remember this? Okay. Maybe I'm the only guy that watches Survivor. Um, fire represents your life. Fire represented the life of, of God. That's, fire represented God's presence amongst his people. It's how he drew Moses, remember, by the burning bush, it's how he led Israel through the night, a pillar of fire. It's how he led them. It's how he rested on, 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 in certain places. So a fire always represented God's presence. And so what they see here is the presence of God. And the way that it's, it's actually depicted here is almost as if there's a singular source of fire that they see. And then as tongues of fire, you know, if you look, it's a, I know tongues is weird to put with fire, but think about it. You know the little, a little flame that comes off a campfire? That's what it's describing when it says a tongue of fire. 
It's these little flames. It's almost like a singular source, as if that is the Holy Spirit. But then these little sparks go off, and they see them resting on each individual, which I think is very important. Those tongues of fire are not only resting on the disciples, the 12 disciples. This is why I pointed out to you early on that there were 120 folks there. Men, women, everybody. But these tongues of fire rest on them. Super significant. Super significant. Because not only is the, the sound of the wind representing God breathing in new life into a new organism, which we'll talk about in a second, but the fire that represents God's presence no longer rests in a place. It resides in his people. So this is, remember, 40 days transition period. <laughs> This is the transition that is taking place right here on this particular day. So God's presence is now visually resting on each person. You see, the arrival of the Holy Spirit marked the birth of the church. Marked the birth of the church. This was not a revamped form of Judaism, This is a totally different thing that Paul ends up telling us in Ephesians. This, the church that is born on the day of Pentecost, was a mystery. It it had never been revealed before. This is something completely new. This is the day that marked the birth of the church, where people are now united by God's Spirit. And the word that is used is uh, the ecclesia or ecclesia, however you want to say it. And that word always represent, it was used mainly of political groups back in that time. But these groups that would gather, they would gather around a particular ideology, but they were called out from other folks and they were set apart and distinct. That's the word that's used here, this ecclesia that's called the church. And we are a called out people set apart by the distinctiveness of the indwelling Holy Spirit. That's what's represented. We are now united, called united by his spirit. That's what uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 12 to 13 says, and this will come up on the screen. It says, For just as the body is one and has many members, this analogy being used of the body is used of the church because we the church is a living organism and all the members of the body though many are one body so it is with Christ for in one spirit we were all baptized into one body Jews and Greeks slaves and free and all were made to drink of one spirit so we are now all unified single source holy spirit where God's uniting us by his holy spirit that indwells each believer. Uh, Cody quote here, that is that believers who have been born again by the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit are indwelled, baptized, identified. We are now because of God's indwelling Holy Spirit sharing in the destiny of being conformed to the image of Christ, who we will then partake of Christ's inheritance as co-heirs with Christ because of his uh, righteousness and regeneration. This is not a unification based on church membership. It's not a unification based on birth. This is a unification based upon rebirth by God's Holy Spirit. 
Exactly what he was talking about in John chapter 3. Okay, so this is the birth of the church. Had not been before is a new organism, a new organization, new entity, completely different that is birthed on this day. So why is it birthed on this day? Well, the Holy Spirit arrived to make Christ known to the world. The Holy Spirit arrived to make Christ known to the world. Not just to Jews, to the entire world. To the entire world. And that's what he says. He tells us how he came to make Christ known to the world here in verses 4 to 8. And then we're going to skip down to the end of 11. But read along with me in verse 4. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. Remember, the, the tongues of fire rested on each person. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were, there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. Stop right there. Why are Jews, devout Jews, dwelling in Jerusalem right then? What are they there for? Pentecost. Awesome. You're following. Love it. Yes, they're, they're there because of Pentecost. Remember, that's why I said best attended feast. Easy time, favorable weather to travel. So they're all there at this time from all different places, from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, what is the sound? The sound is that they're hearing their own language. At this sound, the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished saying, are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? And what were they hearing? If you go to the end of verse um, 11, it says, We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. So all of these pilgrims have come to Jerusalem to celebrate the Feast of Pentecost, the, this uh, last day where they celebrate the national harvest. And it says Luke lists 15 different nations. Now, were they bilingual? Some of them knew Hebrew, but they also knew, they all had these different dialects because of where they lived. Remember, the Jews had been dispersed. The Jews had been dispersed by the Assyrians and the Babylonians. And then it, so they were taken off to other places where they gained these different dialects, these different languages. But they all came back to Jerusalem to celebrate this feast. And then all of a sudden, these people with these different dialects and these different languages, they begin to hear these people speaking in their own language as if they were from their home country, of where they used to be, where they used to live. And they're like, how are they doing this? These are Galileans, which actually uh, some commentators believe when they call them Galileans, it means country bumpkins. Um, Cody's term, but the, these, these uneducated Galileans, how, are, how do they know our language? I mean, it's not like they were sitting, you know, waiting for Jesus, studying Rosetta Stone. You know, they, 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 were, they were praying. And now they hear them in their own language, which is attractive, and it begins to draw people to them. And, and we've all done this. I, I don't know if you've been to a, a foreign country um, and where they don't speak English. But if you hear someone speak English, you are drawn to them. 
Like you're like, oh my gosh, I, I know that language. I'm, I'm familiar. I'm comfortable. And sometimes you can even tell the dialect. I, I remember a long time ago, I was in, uh, this was years and years ago, I was in Paris and we were on a hop on, hop off tour. And uh, this lady got off ahead of us and she goes, mercy. <laughs> I was like, that lady is from Arkansas. <laughs> I kid you not. She had on a shirt that said, Arkansas. I knew the dialect. I mean, you, you, you knew it. And you knew that, that she's not from me. How does, how does she speak my language? I mean, that's Southern. I, I get that language. You know, that's what, that's what they're hearing. They're hearing their own language speaking, but what are they speaking of? What are they hearing? They're not only hearing their own dialect, their own language. They're hearing these people speak of the wonders of God. They're, they're hearing in their own language, that God is wonderful, God is great. See, let me describe what happened here. First, the Holy Spirit filled the disciples to empower them to be witnesses for Christ. That, that's the wonders of God, is they are being witnesses for Christ. This is a fulfillment of Acts chapter 1, verse 8. A direct fulfillment. They were empowered to speak in languages that they did not know, that were not their native tongue, so that they could make Christ known, to, to be his witness, to speak of what they had heard and seen. That's why they were filled with the Holy Spirit. And we're going to take that phrase, filled with the Holy Spirit, and we're going to study that more in the coming weeks in week three of the miniseries. We'll study that. So that is coming up. But basically, to be filled with the Spirit means that you are a complete, you have given up and yielded your life complete control to God's use ascent. That's what it means to be filled by the Spirit, but we'll study more of that uh, later on. Second, the Holy Spirit supernaturally enabled the disciples to speak in other known languages. The Holy Spirit supernaturally enabled the disciples to speak in other known languages. When we talk about uh, tongues, sometimes that can be a topic that people have different ideas about. Um, what we know from the New Testament is that when people speak in tongues, tongues, the word that's used for tongues is glossolalia. It's, it's, it's a known language. It, it's a known language that other people can hear or understand. Uh, these utterances that were given to them, other people understood it wasn't an unknown uh, babble or anything like that. And I, I know that sometimes it's interpreted that way. What we understand the scriptures to be here is that it's a known, when tongues are, are spoken of, it's a known language. And when it was an unknown language, there's always an interpreter who is given, who can interpret what was said. So follow 1 Corinthians 12 through 14 if you'd like to study that further. But we believe that tongues in the New Testament, biblically, is a known language when someone is speaking in a different language other than their own native tongue. And then finally, the Holy Spirit uniquely empowered the disciples to authenticate the message. The Holy Spirit this day the day of Pentecost uniquely empowered the disciples to authenticate the message. This is not normative for today, not normal for today. We as a church do not believe that speaking in tongues uh, validates someone's salvation. 
I just want to be very clear about that because um, I know that that idea is out there in other denominations. That's not what we believe biblically, okay? So we don't believe that tongues is a necessary evidence for salvation. This was not normative. This was the inauguration of the church where he empowered the disciples to be his witnesses in a very unique way to authenticate this new message that they were giving. That, and, and, we, and just so you know, we always, we see God authenticating his message and messenger throughout the scriptures only three times. We see that with Moses, where God miraculously authenticates the message in the messenger. We see it with Elijah and Elisha. And then we see it with Jesus and the apostles. We, we, it's, we don't see this validation of miraculous signs as normative even throughout scripture. So this is not normative or prescriptive for you and me today. This was a unique occurrence for them. And so we believe that those gifts has ceased, not that God cannot do those things miraculously, but the gifts, the signed gifts, healing, tongues, prophecy, those have ceased in the apostolic era. Okay, we know that there's a lot of different, different reasons and scriptures I can go into. Go back to Hebrews chapter 2, verses 1 to 4. Go back to uh, Paul talking about validating himself as an apostle because of these signs. And I'm not an apostle, so I should not have those signs. Go back to 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 12. Um, and then Peter, even when Peter lists the gifts, um, of the spiritual gifts, he doesn't list the miraculous gifts. So we believe that those things were, those sign gifts had, have now ceased, and they ceased in the apostolic era. So just trying to make clear what our position is uh, biblically on what we believe about those sign gifts. But there is one thing that I want you to take away from uh, this description of the, the arrival of the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, and it's this, that the Holy Spirit came to reveal Christ to you and Christ through you. Okay, that's why the Holy Spirit came, is to reveal Christ to you and through you. One of the things that I find very ironic that you're gonna, that you're gonna see over the course of the next three weeks is that as miraculous as the Holy Spirit came to begin this very distinct ministry on earth, the Holy Spirit doesn't make it about the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is always shining light on Christ, never making it about himself. The, and, and I just, I want to go ahead and set that tone. As I told you, uh, the, those first impressions set tone and expectations. The tone is that our lives, when the Holy Spirit, when we, have, when we are abiding by the Holy Spirit, then it's making much of, our lives are making much of Christ. It's not making much of ourselves. But the Holy Spirit came to reveal Christ to us and Christ through us as he's empowered us to be his witnesses. And we're gonna dig into this, as I told you, as we talked about next week, the Holy Spirit's personhood and then his personal ministry to us. Let me pray for us. God, um, we thank you that you chose to dwell amongst your people, that the Holy Spirit uh, resides in those who have placed their faith in Jesus Christ. And I thank you that uh, when you reside in us, Lord God, you guide us into all truth. You comfort us. 
Lord God, you remind us of all the things that you said. You uh, set us free from sin. You empower us to obey. You do so, so many things, and you unite us with one another. You guide us to love one another as Christ has loved us. Lord God, may we be marked um, by that. Not, not by the way that um, we think we should or can exercise the Holy Spirit, but by, Lord God, the way you told the disciples that the world would know that they are yours, and that's by the way that we love one another. So, Lord God, thank you that you sent the Holy Spirit that day. Thank you that the Holy Spirit has resided with your church throughout history and resides with each one of us now. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.